Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It's howdy doody time. It's howdy doody time. Do you know who howdy doody is? Yes, I have a memory of (laughs) that being on TV land or something. Yeah, I mean, it's before my time also, but I remember freckles. I mean, ventriloquist dummies are a weird thing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) In life. I feel like the only one that I've liked was Sofia Vergara's character being a ventriloquist in Modern Family. (laughs) I had totally forgotten about that. Uh, That's a skill she has in real life. No, really? But I feel like that would be far less funny if she weren't so hot. Like, it's funny because she's hot. And I don't know why. Like, I don't make the rules, but that's the rule. That was a, like, legitimate career field. (laughs) Ventriloquism. I know. So I just looked up Howdy Doody, and he was created by so-and-so and presented by Buffalo Bob Smith. But I have no problem whatsoever with Muppets. (laughs) Just so we're clear. (laughs) It's different. There's, it's different. I would die for Miss Piggy. (laughs) Just kidding. What if that was like my really weird hot take is that I'm obsessed with Miss Piggy. (laughs) I mean, we were just talking off pod about various kinks. If if, if that were your kink, I would would judge you, but I would still love you. (laughs) I mean, she is a gay icon, obviously. But like an asexual one. No, she she fucks. Ugh. Kermit is the submissive. She's the dumb. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, obviously, but no. It is crazy how much the Muppets were a part of my childhood. And my is like a kid in the 90s, probably the same for the 80s. But like, even like Muppet Babies, <laughs> like the cartoon <laughs> show of them as kids and like every Muppet Christmas Carol and the Muppets take Manhattan and absolutely well so my parents were so cruel growing up that the Muppets were on Sunday night and they came on after my bedtime that's how much my childhood sucked I went to bed before the Muppet show was on (laughs) (laughs) but I did watch the movies I got an Ernie doll for my fourth birthday Mm-hmm. which did turn me gay. I was going to say, well, that <laughs> explains everything. <laughs> I loved it. He had a like a coat with a working zipper and button. <laughs> and as a little kid, I was like, this is the coolest thing on earth. But we were talking earlier about couples that don't make sense. And Bert and Ernie definitely do not make sense. Like, Ernie is so out of Bert's league. It's ridiculous. Oh, for sure. So I was just about to make a joke about Bert's dick. <laughs> We're off to a great start. <laughs> we are. It's just that kind of week. It's that kind of day. 
But also, I hope there's a human on Earth whose first name is Burton and last name is Ernie. (laughs) I mean, if your last name was Ernie, I think it would be only natural that there would be a parent out there that would want to do that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It seems right. Has there ever been a Muppets Sesame Street crossover? There must be. There must be. Or is that like Marvel and DC? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I Listeners, mean... if you know, I would like to know and not Google. Jim Henson created all of it, right? Or no? Truly no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How do we not know this? It feels like this should be something we know. I would also like a, a new movie like I would watch a version of The Office that is Muppets with one human, one random human. (laughs) Which one? Oh, I don't know. I don't know who would have, like, the charisma. Like, in my head, I was like, maybe it's, like, Angela. (laughs) (laughs) Just, like, intensely mean and stuffy in an office full of Muppets. It It works in my head. I mean, yeah, a, a, like, quote, straight man role. I think it would have to be, like, a super straight man or it would have to be the opposite and be, like, you know. Dwight mm-hmm. playing the exact same character but with Muppets. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Where did all of this come from? I don't even know. We had a plan for banter that wasn't this. What was it? Now I forgot. I can't remember. I forgot. <laughs> You're not old enough to be forgetting stuff like me. Oh, I remember. Wait, wait. I just have like the very beginnings of it. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember our our writing process. We were going to talk about uh. our highly, highly professional and very developed writing processes for the show. But wouldn't you rather talk about the incredible beauty of Lee Pace? <laughs> which we also talked about before (sighs) recording (laughs) dang which now he's off the market everyone sad (sighs) day a moment of silence please i mean not for his husband (laughs) but for everyone else (laughs) he just seems Uh, like a wonderful human being yeah and interesting and intriguing and sexy without trying. Yes, yes. All of those things. And I told you about the amazing show called... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderfalls. Wonderfalls. It's so I good. I actually remembered, but I wasn't sure if it would be better or not to interject. <laughs> I could remember Wonder, but I couldn't remember the second word. Wonderfalls. It is so good. Listener, if you have not watched it, check it out. Sadly, there's only one season, but it is so, it's so good. And Lee Pace is in it. And he's not in it enough for, I think, probably everyone's liking, but he's in it some, which is more than other shows that he's not in at all. Correct. And it also happens to be good. But yeah, Kirsten and I shared with each other our writing process Mm -hmm. as we researched for the podcast for, I think, the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you share yours. So mine is a, it's a real lead up of like four 
to five days of intensely procrastinating mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of like building up the courage and the stamina to start. Mm-hmm. And then I normally break at around 9.30 p.m. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I got this. <laughs> and then I have an edible. <laughs> And it's a race (laughs) to see how far I can get before I can no longer continue. (laughs) And how late does that usually go? Like 9.42? Uh, No, I get good. I get into like 11. Mm, Okay. Feeling good, feeling loose. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a huge dose or anything, but (laughs) feeling chill, getting really snacky. (laughs) (laughs) then flaming hot cheetos are involved in some way oh my gosh i shared with kirsten already that the other day i did have a double dose of edible (laughs) and ended up crushing flaming hot cheetos and sprinkling it over my bowl of spaghetti and it was incredible (laughs) i mean that sounds pretty genius i love it i love it so much i've been eating so many cheetos Well, my process begins like a week or two beforehand, and I'll start reading random articles in different places and not collecting the links anywhere to put in the references later. And then I will take notes on my notes app. I'll take notes on sticky notes on various like notebooks that are placed around the house. And then the day before, I will create a document and I'll actually start typing. I'll get like two solid bullets and then I stop and then I'll start doing more research and I will be looking at places. I might even make a Google map that's specific to the episode with all of the important places that are mentioned. I'll measure distances between all of the places, you know, really try to get in the mind of the killer. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be like, oh shit, Andrew and I are supposed to record in like three hours. I better start writing. And then I'll do like four more bullets and then I'll go down a different rabbit hole. And then 45 minutes before we're supposed to meet and record, I'll be like, fuck. And then I start (laughs) writing. And then depending if it's like a one-parter, two-parter, three-parter, how big the case is, then I'll like text you multiple times. Just 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes. Okay, I'm getting my tea now. Okay, I'll be right there. (laughs) (laughs) And then we start. (laughs) Yeah, I do the small bursts at night, multiple nights. That's really smart. Eh, is it though? (laughs) Who's to say? My brain stops working for real at like 6.15 p.m. And then somehow I'll find myself 50 pages into a (laughs) dissertation about Lizzie Borden. (laughs) And it's like, what have I done? I know. It's so weird. And every time I'm like, why is this taking me so long? And then it's like, oh, yeah, because I like mapped four different ways to get from this place to this place and the history of rail travel in the 1820s. (laughs) That was my my job for this episode. I went so into Spanish history. (laughs) I cannot wait to hear all about it. Should we jump in? Yes, sir. So, listeners, today's episode <laughs> takes place in Barcelona. Uh, yeah, si, si, si. 
in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I don't know about all of you, but my American public school education did not give me any context for this time (laughs) or place. (laughs) Which, of course, you know, gave me the opportunity to... I just broke. I might leave that in. <laughs> it gave me the opportunity <laughs> to do a little research, <laughs> which in my mind is the best kind of research, a medium dive. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Because it's never truly a deep dive. I'm, I'm not reading biographies of the leaders of Spain, but you know. Yeah. More than I ever would have if not for this podcast. Mm. And I'm going to share some of that with you and set the scene for Kirsten to then get into the crime. So as everyone knows, (laughs) philosopher and businessman Frederick Ingalls. (laughs) I say that because specifically Kirsten sent me this factoid that I had no clue of. (laughs) But Frederick Ingalls was the one who in 1873 gave the nickname the Rose of Fire, La Rosa de Foc in Catalan, to the city of Barcelona. So this period of time for Spain is politically and socially turbulent. The 19th century ended with a disastrous military defeat in 1898 at the hands of the United States. Mm -hmm. USA! USA! Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the process, Spain lost the remnants of its once huge overseas empire. So they lost Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. And that's, like, how to pick a side in this battle of, like, colonizer versus colonizer. Yeah. Sometimes I forget, like, the intense colonizer of Spain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, U.S. education system. <laughs> <laughs> so this was also the time that their colonizing rivals, Britain and France, were consolidating or expanding their empires. Mm. So in Spain, it's known as the disaster. Mm. The defeat triggered an outpouring of soul-searching debates attempting to account for their political collapse. Mm. Special attention was paid to the Kingdom of Castile, the geographical and symbolic heart of Spain at the time. It it was kind of like the motor that drove their imperial growth Mm -hmm. since the 16th century. Mm. And like the rest of Spain, Catalonia, or Catalonia in like English speak. Yeah is where our story takes place. And it felt the impact of the disaster big time. Incidentally, that's also where my great-grandfather lived before going to the United States. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. What? You're part Spanish? Uh Uh-huh. You can't tell by my pasty (laughs) white skin. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, Spanish, Swedish, French, and Scottish. I'm shocked. You have the ancestry that I was secretly hoping to discover when I (laughs) did that little 23 in (laughs) me. That's the fun aside of my grandpa grew up in a French-speaking house because his dad was Spanish and mom was Swedish and their common language was French. Wow. southern Mississippi. (laughs) That is so wild. (laughs) So crazy. But anyway... My familial connections aside, (laughs) (laughs) Catalonia's view of the disaster was much more pragmatic than Castile's. It had less to do with, like, perceived failure of will, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what Castile was widely criticized for, and it had more to do with economics. Mm. 
So essentially, like the Madrid government failed to protect vital Catalan investments and their best export market, which was Cuba. Mm. So Catalan cotton exports plummeted. And they were incapable of competing with British rivals on the overseas market. And Catalan mills were left with only one sizable outlet, and that was the rest of Spain. But since this market was limited because they were in poverty, Catalan industry fell into a real economic depression. So this economic downturn was instrumental in persuading the cautious manufacturers and industrialists to adopt a more nationalistic or regional attitude vis-a-vis Madrid. And what better reason for a Catalan voice in Madrid itself to defend the interests? So they had to set rivalries aside, set mm. blame aside. They realized they needed to be involved in Madrid politically. But Catalan politics were wild. Mm. <laughs> there were Catalan federalists who felt comfortable with the monarchy regionalists or nationalists and republicans Mm. and all three groups could be conservative or liberal and the republicans could be centrist or federalist wow so complicating the picture was also the appearance of working class movements socialism anarchism Mm -hmm. each with its own party and union affiliate wow so wild time politically. It's also a time of innovation and boom and bust. Looking at Barcelona specifically, the capital and largest city in Catalonia, big things were happening. In 82, Gaudi's Sagrada Familia Cathedral began construction. Mm -hmm. 87, the city had a population of 272,000 people. In 88, the city held the Barcelona Universal Exposition, which was Spain's first international world's fair. And More than 2 million people from around the world came, uh, with 27 countries participating. Wow. Yeah. So then, by 99, Football Club Barcelona formed. Hmm. So, no idea it was that old. Me either. (laughs) In 1900, Pablo Picasso held his first solo art exhibition in the city. Hmm. And that same year, the population was 533,000. So it nearly doubled in three years. That's insane. Yeah. And then in 1909, Tragic Week happened, Mm -hmm. which was a series of violent confrontations between the Spanish army and anarchists, Freemasons, Socialists, and Republicans of Barcelona, and other cities in Catalonia, Spain. And it was during the last week of July. It was caused by the calling up of reserve troops by Premier Antonio Moara to be sent as reinforcements when Spain renewed military colonial activity in Morocco. Many of these reservists were the only breadwinners for their family, while the wealthy were able to hire substitutes. Ugh. Yeah. So the Union Solidaridad Obrera, directed by a committee of anarchists and socialists, called for a general strike against the call for reserves. And so this was Monday, July 26th. By Tuesday, workers had occupied much of central Barcelona, halting troop trains and overturning trams. Yikes. By Thursday, there was street fighting with a general eruption of riot strikes and the burning of convents. Mm. So many of the rioters were anti-militarists, anti-colonial, and anti-clerical. So the rioters considered the Roman Catholic Church a part of the corrupt middle and upper class whose sons did not have to go to war. Mm -hmm. And much public opinion had been turned against the church by anarchist elements within the city. Interesting. 
So not only were convents burned, but sepulchers were profane, graves were emptied. Of the 112 buildings set on fire during the event, 80 were church-owned. Wow. After disturbances in downtown Barcelona, civil guards and police fired on demonstrators in Las Ramblas, resulting in the construction of barricades in the streets and the proclamation of martial law. So the government declared a state of war, ordered troops to end the result. Working class conscripts recruited from Barcelona and already stationed in the city were considered unreliable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so other army units were brought in from different parts of Spain. Police and army casualties were eight dead and 124 wounded, while 104 to 150 civilians were reported killed. More than 1,700 people were indicted in military courts for armed rebellion. Five were sentenced to death and executed. 59 received sentences of life imprisonment. Uh, general European condemnation in the press was immediate. King Alfonso XIII was alarmed by the reaction at home and abroad, dismissed the premier of the region, and replaced him. Wow. And so it was the same year that Enriqueta Marti opened her own brothel, which attracted some of the more affluent in Barcelona, which Kirsten will talk much more about. So clearly a complicated, dangerous, innovative, and exciting time of growth and challenge for Barcelona. Wow, it's amazing. And it, I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times. It's sad that, I mean, we have to go into a lot of this because the bulk of our audience is American and... We don't learn about this in school here. We don't really learn about our own history. (laughs) That is incredible. Wow. So a nice medium dive. (laughs) Yeah, a good medium dive and good coverage of something that is really complex. So I'm going to switch over into the crime part of this. And as Andrew mentioned, we're talking today about Enriqueta Marti. And we're going to talk about who she was. And unfortunately, as is so often the case throughout history for people born without wealth, not much is known about Enriqueta's origins. We do know that she was born Enriqueta Marti y Ripoles in Sant Felu de Lobregat, Spain, an ancient town about 12 kilometers or seven and a half miles west of Barcelona. We don't know the names of her parents or if she had siblings. We don't even know for sure when she was born exactly, only that based on her self-stated age at the time of her death, she was probably born sometime in 1868. So right in the midst of all of this kind of change happening in Catalonia. A little over a decade prior to Enriqueta's birth, a railway had been constructed connecting Sant Felu de Lobregat and Barcelona, and it turned the small monastery town into a center of industry, which is what it is today, and it's really considered part of Greater Barcelona. And it's unclear exactly when, but Enriqueta left her hometown for Barcelona sometime in late adolescence or early adulthood. And she is said to have worked initially in Barcelona as a maid and a nanny. But as Andrew mentioned before, Barcelona was a pretty unforgiving place, particularly for a young woman on her own. Reports usually note Enriqueta's beauty, though, and claim that after being in Barcelona for a time, 
she realized that she could, sarcastic air quotes, make much more money with her looks as a sex worker than as a nanny. Uh, But let's unpack that for just a minute. A single woman of such modest means and status that we don't even have a solid record of her birth or really any documentation of her early years at all, in spite Mm -hmm. of this only being a little more than 150 years ago. This is a woman just nannying and living her best life in the squalid and tumultuous streets of El Raval, a neighborhood in Barcelona then associated with extreme poverty, crime, and vice. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know what? STIs and tuberculosis be damned. I can make more money being a sex worker, more money than my already comfortable income that I'm making as a nanny. That just doesn't sound right to me. (laughs) Yeah, for for real. (laughs) I think that, you know, she's a young woman in a big, dangerous city trying to survive. According to Catalan journalist Jordi Corominas, who wrote Barcelona 1912, the case of Enriqueta Martí, Barcelona had, quote, 50% illiteracy, and among its 600,000 inhabitants, it had 10,000 trench workers and 12,000 prostitutes, end quote. So times were hard for the common person, and I think it's fair to say that Enriqueta was doing what she needed to survive. In 1895, at about the age of 27, she married a portrait painter named Juan Pujalo. The marriage reportedly lasted for about a decade, but it was a rocky relationship. They separated and reunited multiple times before separating for good around 1907. Juan later reported that Enriqueta's erratic behavior and affairs with other men were what caused their separation. Then in 1909, as Andrew mentioned before, Enriqueta reportedly opened a brothel of her own. Now, this brothel was said to cater to the bourgeoisie of Barcelona. And not only that, but it reportedly catered to men who had aberrant requests, specifically pedophiles. Mm-hmm. Since, obviously, children cannot consent to sex work, I'm going to call the children in this scenario victims. The victims of the brothel ranged in age from some say three years old to 14 years old. Horrific. Yeah. So that happened. Then in July of that year, again, during the tragic week, Enriqueta and a man from a wealthy family were arrested in a flat on Carrer de Minerva, just north of the Avinguda Diagonal, which then divided bougie Barcelona from the plebes in El Raval. And this moment here, I think, is when our story really descends into myth, specifically a kind of myth known as a black legend. So Wikipedia describes a black legend as a, quote, historiographical phenomenon in which a sustained trend in historical writing of biased reporting and introduction of fabricated, exaggerated, and or decontextualized facts is directed against particular persons, nations, or institutions with the intention of creating a distorted and uniquely inhuman image of them while hiding their positive contributions to history, end quote. So, black legend is a thing, a historiographical thing, which is a nice $2 word for you to whip out at your next dinner party. You're welcome. And 
Black legend is also the specific term used for the mythos that has grown up around Enriqueta. So she and this rich dude whose name is lost to time because rich, they get themselves arrested for prostituting children. Now, according to legend, during the raid of that flat, a book of contacts was collected into evidence. And much was made of this little book because it was thought to be a client list. Mm -hmm. Now, naturally, it was big, 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 big news. But fairly quickly, Enriqueta was released from prison. And who knows what happened to the guy or even if he was an accomplice or a client, it's not clear from what I could find. Mm -hmm. I also can't find any details about children who were found in the flat at the time of her arrest or what became of them if they did exist. The focus at that point was on the list and what prominent Barcelonian names might be scratched within its pages. Of course, the book was promptly, quote, lost, according to local gossip, because of a faceless benefactor at the highest level of the government. But whatever happened behind the scenes to make her legal issues disappear, things for Enriqueta at that point more or less resumed as they had been before. Now, though, the media was on the case and rumors swirled. Enriqueta supposedly begged in rags during the day and donned finery to attend the opera at night. Opera. 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 She was a witch doctor and a healer who made tuberculosis remedies out of child remains. And also she liked to drink the blood of babies to ward off disease. So these were all things that were spoken about her at the time, reported mm -hmm. in the media, and then have grown into this black legend. There were also, during that time, many local reports of children gone missing in El Raval. Many, many children. Some people say 40. Some people say hundreds of children went missing during this time. And complaints were made to the police, but the children were either street orphans or they were from the poorest families. And really, mm -hmm. not much was done to address the community's concerns. And to be fair, it seems like, you know, shit was going down in Barcelona. So it may not have even been police apathy. It may just have been a bandwidth thing. You know, the city is kind of in very, very tumultuous times, as you described. But all that changed on February 10th, 1912. On that day, Teresita Guitart Congost aged five, or sometimes in different reports she's, she's said to be seven, she went missing from her mother's care on the streets of Barcelona. But Teresita wasn't the child of an impoverished family or a street orphan. Her parents, though not wealthy, were respected community members, and they went to the police immediately to report her what they believed to be abduction. Mm -hmm. When that didn't yield immediate results, they went straight to the media. So the case immediately blew up. It was all anyone could talk about in the streets, but also it was in the news. And for two weeks, the city was in a frenzy looking for Teresita, but there was no success. But on the morning of February 17th, Claudia Elias, who lived on Carrer Ponent, in the El Raval neighborhood, noticed a young girl at her neighbor's window. She didn't recognize the girl and had never seen her 
in that window or in that vicinity before. And she thought that that girl looked an awful lot like Teresita. Of course, the window that I'm referring to belonged to the flat of Enriqueta. And shortly after she noticed the girl, Enriqueta came to the window to pull the girl back inside. Claudia asked her about the girl, but Enriqueta reportedly closed the window without answering her. So, as I said, Claudia and everyone else in Barcelona had heard about the case, thought the girl looked similar to Teresita. So she was really suspicious, but she wasn't quite ready to go to the police. So Claudia shared her suspicions with another neighbor, a man, and that neighbor then reported it to the police. So 10 days after the sighting on February 27th, police contrived an excuse to get into Enriqueta's flat. Mm -hmm. They came up with a story that they had received a complaint about chickens in the flat and they found her out in the neighborhood and took her back to the home and asked to be let inside. And apparently Enriqueta agreed and let them in. When they went into the flat, they found two girls present, not just one. And they weren't in the greatest shape. They were not, you know, apparently abused or, or injured outwardly in any obvious way. But one of them had had their head shaved and they were kind of dirty and they looked like they might be hungry. When police questioned the girls, they said that their names were Angelina and Felicidad and they claimed that Enriqueta was their mother. But the police, again, had their suspicions. They were pretty sure that the girl was Teresita. So they took the girls and Enriqueta into custody and they questioned everyone further. And pretty soon, the story of them being the daughter of Enriqueta fell apart. And they learned that Felicidad was indeed Teresita, and she was reunited with her family fairly quickly. Enriqueta, of course, was arrested, but she claimed that she had only taken Teresita because she had found her on the street and she was hungry. So she took her back to her flat to take care of her, essentially. But Teresita's version of events, when she finally shared them, differed really greatly from Enriqueta's. Mm -hmm. According to her, she had been lured away from her mother's side by Enriqueta with the promise of sweets. And once she was far enough away from her mother, Enriqueta covered her head with a dark cloth and picked her up and then scurried away to her flat. Once she was in the flat, Teresita said Enriqueta shaved her head and told her that she no longer had parents. She said that her new name was Felicidad, and she was to call her mother and avoid the windows. So during those intervening days, she was essentially a prisoner in that flat. Mm -hmm. Angelina, on the other hand, was a complete mystery. Enriqueta claimed that she was her daughter from her marriage to Juan, but police tracked down Juan, who told investigators that they had not shared a home in over five years and they never had children. Angelina had never known any other mother than Enriqueta, so she couldn't really answer the police's questions. But mm -hmm. she did have a very grisly story to tell the police. Now, again, according to the legend, Angelina reported to police that up until a short time before Teresita had come to live with them, another child had lived in the flat with them. 
and it was a boy named Pepito who was five years old. Angelina also reported that she had seen Enriqueta murder Pepito in the kitchen of the flat with a large knife. It was reported at the time that investigators returned to the flat, found a large knife in some kind of sack, and there were also bloody clothes and lots of bones, child bones, and other remains. And also strangely part of this legend is that within the flat, there was one room that was strangely posh, decorated with fine furniture and curtains Mm -hmm. and fancy clothes. But that that room was locked away and the children were kept in a shabby, you know, part of the home and not fed well and more kind of the kind of flat that you might expect to find in a neighborhood like this. Enriqueta was imprisoned, obviously, and investigators continued to search flats around the area that she either was renting at the time, possibly as other brothels. Uh, Mm -hmm. but also other former residents that she had looking for evidence of murder. The media of the day reported bones. They also reported creams and salves and poultices purportedly made from child remains, which is why people theorized that the monstrous serial killer and, quote, now vampire of Barcelona had killed countless children but did not leave behind corpses. So almost from the beginning, this kind of story that they had uncovered this terrible serial killer, she was kidnapping children, pimping them out, and then killing them and using their remains in these kind of like witch doctor kinds of Mm -hmm. remedies. Investigators pursued, media reported, locals gossiped, and it was global news. I mean, it was a huge, huge case. Again, the evil, sadistic woman who pimped children and boiled babies for face cream. That was essentially the party line. Mm-hmm. In the end, though, Enriqueta confessed that she had prostituted a girl of 17 in a brothel on Carrere Sabadell and that she had performed abortions, but she never once confessed to killing anyone. It was also later discovered that Angelina was, in fact, the daughter of Juan's sister, who she had taken in. Now, on this point, stories differ, reports differ. Mm -hmm. Some say that she had been a midwife at the birth of this daughter, and she had told Juan's sister that the child died in childbirth and then had kept her as her own. Other reports say that Juan's sister's family was simply poor and couldn't take care of the girl, and so Enriqueta had taken her in. The truth of these little details may never be known, but what we do know is that before Enriqueta could go to trial for murder or abduction or any other crime, she died in Reina Amalia Prison on March 12, 1913, at the age of 44 or 45. Mm -hmm. The Black Legend wasn't done with her, though. And many, maybe most reports, love to gloat that she was murdered in prison by fellow inmates because of her monstrous crimes. Many suggest that this vigilante murder was perhaps a prison hit ordered by those in power who were petrified of what she might reveal about them. The truth is, though, that Enriqueta died of uterine cancer, from which she had been suffering for a few years at that point. 
It says so on her death certificate and in her obituary that was published at the time. More recent analysis by journalists and academics suggests that the bloody clothes and rags in her flat were probably from the vaginal bleeding that she would have had caused by her advanced uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. This recent interest in revisiting her case has also revealed that at some time before Enriqueta abducted Teresita, and I couldn't find really any conclusive date or time frame for this, but that she had suffered the death of a son, her only child, who succumbed to malnutrition at just 10 months old. So in the book Dismantling the Case of the Vampire of El Raval, author Elsa Plaza sums it up thusly, quote, The only certain thing is that Enriqueta kidnapped Teresita for reasons that we will never know. Her lawyer defended that she suffered from a disorder of not being able to be a mother. Angelita was her niece, and she took care of her. Regarding the bones found in the flat, it was shown that they were from a person of about 25 years. She was a healer, and at the time it was thought that having certain types of bones in the house brought luck. End quote. So here we find yet another case in a growing list now that we have covered in which a woman has been branded among the most foul of abominations and so, so much of it is entirely fabricated. And still, so many sources, at least in English, contain these factual inaccuracies still to this day. If you go and look at the Wikipedia page, full of complete fabrication and misinformation. If this crime had taken place today, Enriqueta likely would have been found unfit for trial. But even if it had gone to trial, a proper collection and analysis of physical evidence would have almost certainly exonerated her from the worst of the claims against her, murder and cannibalism. It seems clear she suffered from some kind of mental defect, whether because of trauma or... I mean, again, if she did work as a sex worker during this time, she could have had an STI that affected her mental health. It could have been late-stage cancer. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. So was she odd? Certainly. Did she run afoul of the law on many occasions? Definitely. Did she have the temerity to profit off of the depravity of the upper class and their sick desires? A hundred percent. But was she a monster? I don't think so. She, I think, was yet another victim of tabloid journalism, which, of course, was owned and managed by men at that time. Perhaps the very men who ruled Barcelona that we mentioned earlier. And she was a scapegoat for what appears to be, from our modern perspective, a rampant child sex trafficking problem in the city at the time. So when you really look at this case within the larger context, I don't think Enriqueta deserves the ugly moniker that she has had for all of these years. It's an interesting one. I mean, she did kidnap a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think I'm slightly less kind interpreting it. I, I think she is absolutely a scapegoat and that doesn't disclude her from potentially being part of the child trafficking. I mean, I think she for sure trafficked children and had a brothel that was, you know, 
victimized children. I, I think that but the is cannibalism, certain. the witchcraft. I mean, any time witchcraft gets <laughs> pulled into the conversation, <laughs> I I couldn't believe how right after Lizzie Borden, this case was going in the research, where it's mm-hmm. like. Every damn time, it seems. I mean, that is like the biggest red flag there is, I think. The only thing I could think of was Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. And like, we have to pin this on Enriqueta. Mm-hmm. The book goes missing. Mm-hmm. Like, so many people involved. And everything is like, well, we're going to say that she's a vampire witch. Mm-hmm. And don't look behind the curtain it was one crazy bitch absolutely not a structure of rich men (laughs) victimizing children left and right yeah and she's not innocent but she's not a vampire witch (laughs) right right that's why i say she does i don't think she deserves the name the vampire of el raval or because i mean all of that is bullshit that's smoke and mirrors Yeah, was she an amazing person who, like, defended the weak? No. Was that really common at the time because shit was fucked and she's trying to survive? Yeah. Is that a garbage truck? That is thunder. Oh, I hope my mic picked all of that up. That's so creepy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, but we talk about the worst of the worst. Was she the worst of the worst? I don't think so. I think she was a product of her time and a scapegoat for people who were way, 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 way worse. Yeah. So most of the pop culture, she's the worst person on earth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, her Wikipedia page, the first sentence is like, you know, Enriqueta Marti child pimp and serial killer like it states it as fact and it's not proven that she killed anyone ever yeah the story doesn't have much Mm -hmm. in the realm of pop culture Mm -hmm. i think this is one of the things about american and british crimes is like it has such a faster entry point into like hollywood Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's not nothing so starting with books Los Diarios de Enriqueta Marti is a novel that centers on a few supposed diaries that Enriqueta wrote before beginning her quote-unquote murderous career. (laughs) (laughs) El Misterio de la Calle Poniente is a novel by Fernando Gomez. And this one like really pulls in Tragic Week Mm -hmm. that I talked about. So it's... The story of Enriqueta, true or false, all surrounded by Tragic Week and what was going on in the city. Mm. Mm. And, you know, it does, it's so hard to know, like, which parts are true and which parts are not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it follows the story that you outlined, mm-hmm. true or not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the book you mentioned by Elsa Plaza, I actually didn't have the... English translation, so I just had it as El Cielo Bajo Los Pies. And like you said, that's the one that presents her as a likely scapegoat, and a number of destitute families are accused of selling their children Mm -hmm. out of Mm -hmm. economic depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
as horrible as that is, it's not even the kidnapping side. Right, right. It's that families were so desperate they were literally selling their children. Right, right. Horrific. Um, Barcelona Shadows is a novel by a guy called Mark Pastor. And this one's really interesting. I'll read you this quote about the book. So it's just, quote, Pastor's humble but effective storytelling innovation is to have death narrate the story. It sounds gimmicky, but in Pastor's able hands, it adds a fateful dimension. Pastor is also skilled at creating brief, crisp scenes that get into the minds of not only his detective, but of two captive little girls and other characters as well. End quote. Mm. Mm, That sounds interesting. Yeah, I was even considering reading it, but Pastor is very much in the camp that Enriqueta's a psychopath. Boo. And I found an interview uh, on Vice with Mm -hmm. him that had some really interesting things. And since there's not a ton of information in the culture side about this case, I'm going to go into that interview at the end. So Mm -hmm, stay mm -hmm. tuned. But finishing out the books, we end with La Vampira del Carrer Ponente o Els Mistris de Barcelona by Joseph Arias Velasco. La Vampira de Raval, the Vampire Raval, was also a 2013 musical by Albert Gunovart, and it won the Max Awards for the Performing Arts, uh, which is sort of like the Spanish Tonys uh-huh. for musical score. Wow. And films, there's the Spanish film Diamond Flash. And in the film, Enriqueta controls an organization that's dedicated to kidnapping children, mm. which also could have happened. There could have been kidnapping as well, but I still think the most likely is selling them um there's also la vampira del barcelona in 2020 and that was directed by a man named luis danes and you know it's set in the same thing teresita goes missing shocks the country but interestingly this is the movie so again this is 2020 Mm -hmm. so this is the movie that follows the evidence that shows enriqueta was less of a serial killer and more of a mentally unwell victim of the media and a police frenzy attempting to cover up a large pedophile ring. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it draws parallels with modern life, and it did that with the director. And he said, quote, fake news was born then, not now, end mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. And Nora Navas, the actress who plays in Riquetta, even expressed that she ended up deeply caring for that character Mm -hmm. and they say like it's she was not a saint obviously like she was complicit in a pedophile ring like right right incredibly fucked up but it's just not the version that history has and like that's got to be by design to protect protect rich powerful pedophiles yeah yeah for sure so yeah so their hopes was that the movie really shows the ever-present power dynamic between the press and the police. Mm, mm. In TV, there are two episodes of a show called Corto Milenio, which were broadcast in 2006, that discussed the so-called vampire. Mm -hmm. And this vampire figure was also characterized on a Spanish TV series called El Ministerio del Tiempo. And it, it follows the plot of, you know the story. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that was the crux of the pop culture I was able to 
find that was inspired by this case. I think the language barrier, mm-hmm. I'm sure there has to be more Spanish yeah. pop culture. Yeah. But in terms of like Hollywood, movies, TVs, I mean, even the stuff I found was mostly Spanish, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there's more. And I'm sure there's much more inspired by the black legend that don't actually follow the Enriqueta story. Yeah, yeah. But because of that, jumping back to Mark Pastor, that author, mm-hmm. aside from being an author, he's a CSI detective in Barcelona. And at the time of writing the book, he was hunting real-life serial killer Remedio Sanchez. Mm. So I'm going to read you the story he told in the interview about how the case influenced the book and how it influenced his writing. Not too long, slightly long, but this is all his story. So it's like one big quote. Okay. (laughs) I was trying to write the book and get into Enriqueta's mind, the mind of a female serial killer. Okay, pausing from the the quote, alleged serial killer. Yeah, I mean, show me the proof. So I think if we just go down the line and we say that she is a serial killer, at least the character he wrote is a serial killer, it'll make sense. Mm. It was the summer of 2009, and a woman appeared strangled and stabbed in a neighborhood in Barcelona. We went to investigate. There was a lot of violence in those days, lots of break-ins, so we didn't know exactly what happened. Two weeks after the crime, another old woman was murdered in an apartment. This was less violent, but there were some coincidences between the two cases. At the same time, some robberies were conducted in the same way. A woman would enter an older woman's house, talk to her, and then beat her up in order to rob her. It was strange. In two weeks, we had four or five robberies, including old women being beaten. The procedure seemed to be the same. The woman would always ask for a glass of water and then come in and then turn into a monster. It was maybe the worst time in my career. Every time the phone rang and somebody said she did it again, I felt awful. You want to get her before she can do it again. It was a big investigation. She was so fast leaving the crime scene that we could never catch her. We got some blurred pictures from a CCTV camera. We knew how she moved. We found out that she lived and worked in the same neighborhood all the robberies were taking place in. It took about two months of investigation, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. It was exhausting. I could tell she was beginning to feel powerful because she killed even more often. The robbery was only an excuse. She'd Mm. been stealing all her life. When she killed for the first time, she realized, this is what I like. The last killings became more and more violent. Again, we arrested her because of a mistake. She stole a credit card, went to a casino, and tried to use it. So we went to that casino and looked at the IDs, and we went to arrest her. She worked at a bar where a lot of cops go, cooking omelets, which I was like, a bar that cooks omelets? Oh, yeah, Spanish tortilla. Mm. Mm. Anyway, back to the quote story. (laughs) All the cops say she cooked very well. We went to the bar but didn't find her. But we found her by the phone and she was going to kill another woman. She dialed the number of another woman she was going to kill that afternoon. After the arrest, we went to her apartment. She was cold. She didn't say anything. When the cop grabbed her to take her out of the car and into her building, she refused to move. She was screaming, leave me, leave me. Inside the apartment, the officer told her, nobody can see you now, so stop. She instantly stopped crying. All her house was painted purple. She sat down on a sofa in her living room, and the judge told her, we're going to look for evidence of homicide. She stood up face-to-face with the judge and said, I do not agree. 
Have you seen The Silence of the Lambs? It was like the Hello Clarice scene. She began to walk around the room looking into everyone's eyes. We found a lot of evidence. She had a lot of little things that reminded her of her victims. When I saw Sanchez, I saw Enriqueta. Well, a hundred years difference, but they're both female serial killers who killed innocent people, children and grandmothers. Her eyes had the same glaze that I saw on the picture of Enriqueta, so I knew how to get into her mind. I wrote Enriqueta based on Sanchez, end quote. (sighs) So even though it's not true, that's really interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's a super gripping story, and I just don't know the factual basis for her being a killer, but then on top of that, like a killer of children and grandmothers, like now she's supposedly killed a grandmother. I mean, oh no, like the innocent people. So, like, Remedio Sanchez killed grandmothers, Enriqueta, air quotes, killed children. So, oh, that was oh, like oh. the equivalent. Like, they both killed innocents. Innocents. Okay. Okay. I, I just, you know, again, I mean, where's the evidence? Like, I can't counter this with lots of detailed information because, again, the language barrier. I mean, I did become a master Google Translate um, user. Me but, as well. <laughs> you know, so many journalists write that there just wasn't the info. So I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert on Spanish culture and Spanish criminals, certainly not more than an actual spanish csi person but i guess in fairness there's not a zero percent chance she wasn't a serial killer (laughs) but like where are the bodies she legit like used a hundred percent of all of these supposed victims to make creams like and my version (laughs) this is disclaimer disclaimer air quotes but like thing in the mind of a horribly fucked up person, why would you kill the thing that is making you money? Well, yeah. Yeah. So I like even pragmatically, it's like, but what sense would it make? But this guy would say she's a psychopath. There doesn't have to be a reason. Yeah. But so, you know, we teased this on social. And part of the reason that we decided to do this case is because I was recently in Barcelona. So when I went there, and you're going to see it on, holy shit, we're having a a genuine (laughs) thunderstorm here. Keep it in, keep it in, it's spooky. (laughs) Um, But so I went to El Raval, and I went to the places, and we're going to share it on social media, the pictures that I took. But for real, the street that she was arrested on, it's 16 feet across, So when I tell you that people were living, like, in squalor on top of one another, they were living on top of one another. So, again, I'll share the pictures, but the street between one side and the other was 16 feet across. I measured it. How in the fuck would you have, like, processed human remains for dozens of people in this place where like you couldn't fart without your your neighbor knowing about it and smell alone right the smell and just the fact the way that she was eventually caught and arrested was because her neighbor noticed like a strange girl in the window but you're gonna tell me she managed to like kidnap dozens of children keep them for her like perverse whatever's 
kill them and then completely annihilate any human remains from the face of the earth within this like compact area. I just, I just don't see how. What do you think about Pepito? So again, like the language barrier makes it a little bit hard. She claimed that Pepito went back, went out to the country to return to his family, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. And I read in some places that they later did track him down and he was alive, but I couldn't find any like real good evidence. You know, I was joking earlier about how I like to go down these like somewhat useless rabbit holes of like, Mm -hmm. you know, how many, how many meters between this building and that building. And, but one of the things I like to do too, is I like to go on ancestry.com and look people up and see what became of them or find death records for this and that to like corroborate things that I'm reading in different places. And I just couldn't do that in this case because, you know, the language barrier combined with the records just don't seem to be as great. Like I could find a, find a, find a grave record for her, but I couldn't find a birth certificate for her. Couldn't find a marriage certificate. I couldn't find any record of her husband existing. So a lot of this is just having faith in reports by people who have good credentials themselves. So, but to that point, like, I did go to where she's buried and because of all of this press and the belief about her at the time and now she was given a pauper's grave. So there's no grave that's marked with her name or anything like that. Um, But again, I'll share on socials. She's in this amazing, beautiful cemetery on a mountain just outside of central Barcelona in a mass grave. I mean, it's sad all the way around, and we do center victims, and the real victims in all of this are the children, but, you know, I think that they're the victim of a time in history and a depraved system, like so many things, and was she a part of that? Yeah, but she was just a cog in a much bigger system. And then just the insanity of, like, you have these Jeffrey Epsteins, Ghislaine Maxwell, and for whatever reason, these unhinged Republicans are like, Hillary Clinton runs a pedophile ring in a pizza parlor. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think, this is my conspiracy about conspiracy, is that I think QAnon is run by the same people who do the child trafficking. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what would make sense, right? And it's like, hey, look look at all these other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I'm no, like, Hillary Clinton stan, but she's probably not running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor. Well, and when you can get a list of hundreds of Republican Congress people who have been convicted of sex crimes and child sex crime, all the way up to the Speaker of the House Mm -hmm. for George Bush. And of course, it's like pedophilia is not based in your political ideation. Like they're everywhere. But like, it's just so often Republican Congress people. And for whatever reason, it's like, well, obviously Hillary Clinton, not including Bill in this, because Bill might be just as guilty. Yeah. But Hillary yeah. specific. Yeah. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Tom Hanks, 
eating babies and drinking their blood. And It is weird, though, how there's some kind of DNA to this story that gets repeated over and over again. And this idea of, like, the archetype of the woman who wants to, like consume youth to preserve her own mortal beauty this idea of like consuming babies and witchcraft and like it just it pops up in so many different things it's like can't the pedophilic abuse be enough like why do you have to create these like i guess it's like to not confront the idea that these are just humans like it has to be witchcraft and ritual and well and also it deflects from the actual crimes that are happening which as horrific as they are are pretty banal but then oh yeah that's just like a one-off of this guy who abused this child but over here there's a whole conspiracy and it's this and it's that and it's like occult and weird and And that's just, like, deflecting from what actually happened, which, again, not creepy and weird and occult, just, like, awful. Yeah. And, like, conspiracy is real. The deep, deep, deep levels of connection with Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Barr and all of these lawsuits and investigations and... Right, right. And they... Like It's like, why will they refuse to look at the conspiracy that can be corroborated? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and I hate... look over here, look over there. I hate the online when it's like, anybody's like, well, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein, and then like, what about Bill Clinton? It's like, bury them both in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> Right. But it's just a big, like, red herring. It's like, oh, yeah, well, and then people get mired in their, like, affiliations. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm with you. It's like, just take out the trash, all of it. I don't care what color trash bag it's in. Like, it needs to all go. And especially, I mean, I could go on forever. But when you look at the (laughs) Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, the Baptist Convention, all with severe child abuse allegations and cover up the boy scouts like it does happen it's not lost on me that these like religious conservative organizations are rife with child abuse and pedophilia well and i think that the commonality in all of these is this like rigid patriarchal power Mm -hmm. structure and I mean, I'm not an expert on cults, but a lot of the things that are attributed to cults that help them do what they do can be found in lots of other organizations that we don't call cults. Yeah. And I mean, Jenny Thomas was a confirmed cult member mm-hmm. who got deprogrammed and is now in the cult of QAnon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Y'all, listeners, if you made it this far... It's crazy out there. It is crazy. Watch your children, not just from getting snatched on the street with promises of sweets, which, oh my God, like that thing, it's amazing to think that that trick goes back that far and probably way farther than that. But, well, what? Hansel and Gretel, like yeah. that's an old trope. 
So watch them on the streets, but also watch their brains and what they're consuming online because that's another way to lose your kids. We'll definitely have resources in the show notes for this one. There's a lot of triggers. Yeah, this is a dark one. And since we've already been triggering, just remember that most abuse comes from people you know. A thousand percent. So also keep that in your mind about who has access to your children. Yeah, maybe we'll even throw in those resources, um, some links to things to look for in your kids' behaviors that are indication that they may be being groomed. Yeah. Oof. This one took a dark turn, right? Right. I mean, it was all dark, but... Yeah. (laughs) But that's what we do. Yeah, and hopefully you enjoyed going on this journey with us. Hopefully you learned a bunch of information. I mean, we do try to make it a point to not just focus everything on America and Americans. Mm -hmm. And it might require, you know, some deeper work on our side, but I'm, I'm happy to make that effort. Absolutely. And I think it it goes along with what we've always contended, which is this is part of the human condition to commit crimes, but then also to be deeply interested in understanding them and learning from them and um, absorbing them into the culture in these different ways. 100%. Well, listener, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 